From high atop 107 Columbia with a spectacular view of the Capital District and this beautiful weather that we are now experiencing here, welcome to this week's edition of the NIPTI Practice Tips. Today we are going to be discussing some of the key evidentiary issues and rules that apply in presentation of cases to the grand jury. So let's begin. Let's start with a basic question. May an indictment be based on evidence that is subsequently suppressed by the court? The simple answer to this is yes. Following the case of People v. Gordon and its progeny from the New York Court of Appeals in 1996, the court held an indictment is not rendered legally insufficient due to the fact that the identification procedure upon which it is based subsequently was found to be improper. Let's move on to our next point. Is there a requirement that a grand jury presentation include evidence of how the defendant was identified to the police? The simple answer to this is no. While it is the preferred practice to include evidence within the grand jury presentation that explains how the defendant was identified as the perpetrator, this evidence is not required. Please see the case of People v. Cedeno from the First Department, 1999. Another issue of identification evidence in the grand jury that creates problems is this. Is evidence of a photographic identification proper to be presented in the grand jury? The answer to this is yes. And this answer predates the recent legislation, which will soon be allowing in-court evidence of a photographic mugshot identification. In the case of People v. Brewster, which the Court of Appeals ruled on in 1984, the court wrote in a footnote, identification of a defendant to a grand jury by having the complaining witness identify the person depicted in the photograph as the perpetrator and having the custodian of police photographic records testify to the name of the person portrayed in the photograph is permissible. One of the citations the court pointed to was the case of People v. Ball. And in that case, the court wrote, we find, therefore, that the photographic identification testimony received here was competent and admissible for grand jury purposes, and the evidence before the body was legally sufficient to support the indictment. Obviously, in presenting photographic identification to the grand jury, it should not be made clear or inferred to the grand jury that these are mugshot photo identifications, but simply photographic identifications. Now let's take a look at a question of sufficiency of evidence. The question is, if an indictment is based on insufficient evidence, may a conviction, either as the result of a trial or plea, be reversed for that reason on appeal? The answer to this is no. CPL section 210.30 subdivision 6 directs that an order of the court which finds the evidence in the grand jury sufficient to support the indictment, whether correct or not, is not reviewable on appeal from a conviction based on legally sufficient evidence. In other words, once the court has ruled and the trial is held, even if the court makes a mistake in that ruling of sufficiency, the trial verdict or the plea prevent any appeal by the defense. Now, let's take a look at one of our favorite topics, accessorial liability. If, acting in concert, accessorial liability is not charged to the grand jury and it is not included in the indictment, may it nevertheless be charged to the jury at trial? The answer to this is yes. 
Accessorial liability pursuant to Penal Law Article 20 is not considered an element of the crime to which it is applied, nor is it considered a theory of prosecution as that term applies to the prohibition in amending indictments when it changes the theory of prosecution. Therefore, it is appropriate for the people to present such evidence at trial and request the court to charge the jury on the issue of accessorial liability. Now, as we have said before, you simply cannot spring this on the defense, and as soon as you determine you want to proceed with accessorial liability as part of your case post-indictment, you must inform the defense because the court may well preclude you from doing it, finding that you have ambushed the defense, either intentionally or otherwise. Now, here's a question and an issue that is sometimes overlooked by people presenting cases to the grand jury. When corroboration evidence is required at trial, is that corroboration evidence also required in the grand jury? The answer to this is yes. When corroboration would be required at trial, the same corroboration is required in the grand jury. Now, this is written in CPL 190.30 subdivision 1, and also you can find the Court of Appeals has addressed this in the case of People v. Groff in 1987. In the Groff case, the court held the critical issue is the standard of corroboration required by 60.20 to establish a prima facie case when proof of the charges depend upon the testimony of the unsworn victim. The statute is silent on the question, and there have been substantial changes in public policy since the court last addressed this issue. We now hold that the evidence is a sufficient amount if the unsworn victim's testimony is corroborated by evidence tending to establish the crime and connecting defendant with its commission. How about a question concerning evidence of a loaded operable firearm? Okay, here's one. In presenting a gun case, are the people required to present evidence that the defendant did not have a valid license for that gun? The answer is no. You are not required to present evidence to either the grand jury or a pettit jury that the defendant did not have a valid license. That is not part of the required proof of possession of a loaded operable firearm or possession of a firearm. Take a look at the case of People v. Washington from the First Department in 1994. How about this? In presenting a burglary case, are you permitted to use the theories of entered or remained within one count of a burglary indictment? The answer to that is no. Please take a look at the case of People v. Gaines from the Court of Appeals in 1989, where the court held you must select one or the other of these in a single count of burglary. If both may apply to your case, and that's an open question to be determined by the jury, then you should be presenting and voting two separate counts to the grand jury one with each of these two possible theories. What about a procedural issue related to evidence before the grand jury? Okay, let's try this question. What is the best way to present evidence of a defendant's previous conviction when that previous conviction is an element of the crime for which he or she is now being charged? First, you present the evidence of the underlying substantive crime. You then charge the jury on that crime and vote that charge. If the grand jury votes a true bill, you then introduce the evidence of the previous conviction. You charge the jury on the elements of the elevated crime and vote. In this way, the presentation of the previous conviction 
does not serve to prejudice the defendant in any way while the jury is considering the evidence of the substantive crime. Quick question with a quick answer. Can there be a Crawford violation in the presentation of grand jury evidence? The answer is no. A Crawford violation, remember, is a denial of the defendant's right of confrontation. Because the defense does not examine witnesses in the grand jury, there cannot be a Crawford violation in the grand jury. And now for a bonus question. If you were presenting evidence of the crimes of assault or a sex crimes charge or a robbery, are you required to ask the witness if he or she gave the defendant permission or authority to commit the crime? The answer to this is no. While we use that form of questioning in a burglary case to confirm that the witness did not give the defendant permission or authority to be in the building or home where he or she committed the alleged crime, when presenting evidence of these other crimes, it will appear to a jury strange at times to present that given the nature of the evidence you have already presented to them. It is therefore strongly suggested that in those other types of crimes, you do not ask that question of the witness. We have a great deal of case law authority for the issues presented today, so please be sure to see the written version of this NIPTI practice tip, which contains all of them. As always, our thanks to our crack producer, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. To all of you out there, be well and stay ready, my friends. Suicide.